listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 225. This episode has been kind of a long time coming as first Trump and now Biden and the Democrats ramp up their targeting of China in policy and in rhetoric with a bill aimed at countering China's economic and geopolitical rise passing the Senate recently. We talk to some experts on what all of this means for workers and how to talk about trade and outsourcing without falling into racist and nationalist tropes. But first, the news. Last week, over 2,700 nurses and healthcare workers at Chicago's Cook County Health System went out on strike as staffing shortages and pandemic conditions grew increasingly intolerable, like at so many other hospitals, including St. Vincent Hospital in Massachusetts, where nurses are still out on strike after more than 115 days. I spoke to Elizabeth Lalish, a nurse at John H. Stroger Hospital, about the strike and conditions of the hospitals as the pandemic continues. We just went on a one-day strike uh, last Thursday on June 24th um, for, it was the first, it's been, it's the first strike that uh, the nurses have had since 1976. Um, So it's been, you know, 40 years or a little bit more. um, And it was a very uh, incredible event. Um, So there, uh, we, the vast majority of nurses uh, we're out on the picket line. We had had a strike authorization vote some weeks prior, um, which was historically high. It was 98.6%. Um, and people were, were, nurses were ready to go. Um, and so we were on strike in front of my hospital. We were had nurses who are in the Cook County Health, uh, sorry, at the Cook County Jail. Um, mm-hmm. We represent nurses there um, in our um, Provident Hospital, which is on the south side. Uh, the first historic black hospital in the country. I think that's all the places we had picket uh, picket lines was around the hospital. Oh, and, and some of our clinics that are right next to the hospital. So it was amazing. Yeah. So what are some of the things that brought you to the point of the strike? The issues that brought us to the strike were uh, really uh, three things. Um, and it's connected to the pandemic um, because for the last 15 months, Um, nurses in my hospital and in the hospital system and all over the country have obviously been uh, what they call on the front lines, um, working on COVID units, really seeing the reality of of what the pandemic has brought. And so I think it's, you know, made people, it's sort of the backstory to made people very aware of the inadequacies of our health system in providing safety for us. Um, But the issues specific to it that are connected are around staffing. Um, we have lost close to 400 uh, nurses in the last, it's been longer than the pandemic, but in particular about half of that in the last 15 months or so with people retiring or leaving to go somewhere else. Um, and the staffing on the front lines has been so short that it's it's just, it's impossible to be able to really be able to care for our patients and to to make sure everything's safe. So that was our big push. And I think that's similar to other strikes around the country um, that we're seeing, but it's also then about how uh, they, they, they were talking about um, our management was talking about uh, giving us basically no raise over the course of our contract and then increasing our healthcare, doubling it. 
So it's that's connected to the staffing issue because if you're going to recruit and retain nurses, you have to have things that will bring them in and keep them there. And that that's really our push was that we want people who permanently want to be there. We have people who come in from agencies and they're paying them a lot of money. It's been many months in the hospital that they've been there, partly to help us, obviously, with the pandemic, traveling nurses. But we want people who are there to take care of our patients, who know our patients and are really aware. Um, our patient population is really pretty unique. It's nowhere else in the in the city will our patients, who are mainly black and brown, un- immigrant, poor, homeless, people who are at the jail, be taken care of. So it sounds it sounds pretty familiar to our listeners who've heard from other striking nurses recently. Yeah, um, absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about the Cook County Health System for our non-Chicago listeners who aren't familiar? Sure. As I mentioned, it's the second largest public health system in the United States next to New York's, which I think people probably aren't that familiar with public health systems because they've been um, privatized right. um, and gotten rid of across the country. Um, and so... Uh, it is a big system. Um, for my union, um, it represents 1,200 nurses, registered nurses, um, across the system. And it takes care of, so it has a, a history of being a place that will take care of anyone regardless of their ability to pay. So it's supported by taxpayers' money and by federal funds um, and county funds. Um, and it serves people who um, were hit the hardest by the pandemic, which are our black and brown populations on the south and west side of the city, um, disproportionately impacted by COVID. Those are the people we saw in our COVID units. Um, you know, immigrants, undocumented, essential workers, um, and increasingly people who've lost their insurance due to the pandemic because they've lost their jobs. So mm, the system yeah. is pretty unique that way. Um, and it's a vital part of, I think, the city to be able to properly take care of um, of, of those communities. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I understand one of the issues that you all raised was that federal funds had come into the city to supposedly fund healthcare, and that they are not turning up in ways that you guys could see. Right. So it's um, the system the Cook County system received a billion dollars approximately. It's a little less, but a billion dollars. And I was shocked Still by that. A lot. <laughs> I, I was I was like, the B word? You mean <laughs> that's a lot of money. So this is in the second wave of federal relief funds that uh, the federal government has provided. Um, and we, you know, when you have that kind of money, we, there was no discussion about, okay. How are we going to use that to adequately, like I said, staff the hospital, like the people who have been on the front lines who take care of patients every day, we're seeing those people just leave. And that's really distressing um, because you can't take care of people and the cohesion of, of a unit in a hospital as a team to work together as coworkers is just sort of shattered. And we got very little response. It's like, oh, well, we can't use that money for that. And it's like, but why not? That's what it's there for. What are you doing with it? So, and additionally, since the pressure of the strike um, last Thursday, it came to light in the local news that in the next budget round, 
um, that the Cook County health, uh, the Cook County budget overall, it's not just the hospital system. There are other parts to it. Um, they have a $60 million surplus. So we were just like, so, so what now (laughs) going on with the money? Yeah. And so, and you know, in, in the background, you, in the news, there are lots of stories and it's not just public sector, it's private sector health right. um, facilities and institutions are pocketing this money. They're keeping yeah. it and they're laying people off and cutting their benefits. This is a story that echoes mm-hmm. throughout the hospital and the healthcare system in the United States. So, Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because of course, the one that I've been covering lately is the, the hundred and I don't exactly remember 115 days maybe they're at now the mm-hmm. uh, the St. Vincent strike it which is it of course at Tenet which is a for-profit hospital That's system true. and so it is it i must say it's a little frustrating to hear the same problems from one of the few public health systems in the country right you would think that there would be some sort of difference um but again it's i think a bigger uh, it, it brings up the bigger questions about what's going on in our healthcare system overall because the public health care systems are clearly dependent upon taxpayers and um, budgets and tenant is huge and makes millions, if not billions of dollars in profits. But the fact that both, you know, are starving out their quote unquote frontline heroes. We were heroes last year. Right. And then this year they can't even really, you know, they tell us to take cuts. I mean, for the county system to say to us, we're going to give you a 0% raise in the first year of your contract. That was their offer. And then W Healthcare essentially means we have to pay to work for you. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think that's really a good idea after yeah. everything we've done to basically hold this city together, along with obviously so many other workers who had to go to work and everyone else who makes the city run, you know, teachers and everyone else. Yeah. That brings us rather nicely to my other, my next question, which was about um, SEIU local 73 being out with you all um, in among other places at Cook County jail. Um, And of course the last time you and I spoke, it was, we talked about, you know, seeing patients from the hospital, from the jail rather in the COVID wards, all of this. Um, Could you talk a little bit more about these connections? I mean, uh, the connections to, first of all, SEIU Local 73, so they represent all of our uh, hospital support staff. Um, they also work at the jail. They also work within um, different, you know, institutions within the county government um, that make it run. And so as far as the hospital support staff, just to tell you what the, who those people are, that, and it's been talked about in the news over the course of the pandemic, but there are housekeepers, there are the people who deliver food trays, there are nurses' aides who are doing direct patient care, there are unit clerks who actually help the units function, um, and they're vital to everything that we do. And so we uh, purposely uh, worked with Local 73 to line up a strike this time to go out together. We didn't go out on exactly the same day. We went out last Thursday. They went out last Friday on June 25th. Part of that is about the courts. They would have probably enjoined more of our union members across the two unions if we had tried to go out together. There was a great panic, right, about the the um, the, the safety. Um, that's how the courts look at it. Um, 
causing a, a, a you know a danger to uh, our patients, but we felt that it was powerful because um, to go out and 73 had gone out in December alone. We weren't quite ready to go out with them at that point in negotiations, but the connection is really that it, it, we were about showing our management and frankly, the Cook County government, how completely vital we are to making the hospital run. And as far as the connection to the jail, I mean, I saw patients, I, I worked twice on a COVID unit last year, once in the spring, which was with inmates from the Cook County Jail. Um, and they are regularly a population that um, we work with on my unit in particular. And, you know, Cook County Jail was an epicenter for, for the COVID um, pandemic at that point. And so the fact that SEIU and nurses um, as well went out at the jail makes it very difficult for um, that institution to function, right? And so all of it is connected in the sense of really understanding how important we are to the functioning of the hospital system um, and to taking care of um, inmates and all, you know, all parts of the population across the entire city. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the last time we talked, you were part of a day of action among nurses around the country um, demanding better protective equipment. Um, and we also talked about conversations that were happening among those nurses across healthcare systems, plural, um, about the need for a real public healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us anything about any organizing or more discussions on that front that are going on or are people sort of flattened by a year and a half of, of pandemic hell? I mean, I think that it's, there's definitely discussions about organizing. It's both things, you know, it's been very exhausting for 15 months, um, to be continuing to work, um, without any kind of break and frankly, without any acknowledgement about what we've done and, and respect. But, um, people certainly, I think the pandemic has opened up so much. And this is what we talked about last year, but we're 15 months into it about really what are the priorities of a system that doesn't look to, um, giving, you know, those like us, um, who are out on strike, what we need to be able to provide healthcare to, um, you know, really important populations, working class people, poor people in the city. Um, and, I think the conversation, so around Medicare for all, for example, my union continues to organize around that. Um, at the legislative front to be able to push for that kind of, um, uh, you know, reform to happen it's, it, at the national level, it's going to be a very difficult fight. But I think these strikes are also um, a, a part and parcel of that struggle, right? At, at the point of, of production, so to say, so to speak, to use that phrase is to talk about, um, you know, we see the worst of it and it has to change. And so, for example, in, um, and we need to be the ones having a say and determining what our system looks like. I think, you know, and, and I'm saying kernels of that exist within these strikes, right? People should be paid what they're deserved. If you have billions and millions on top of it, dollars in excess, you should use that to be put into our healthcare system that serves communities, um, not to be pocketed. 
Um, and the other part of it is really determining how the work looks. Um, for example, we are proposing to um, the Cook County Health and Hospital System that we have job fairs uh, to hire nurses, and we want to participate. So we want to participate in the fairs. We're going to have a, com- a committee of nurses along with management to say, we need to determine who gets hired and how they're retained because we don't think you know, management on its own has clearly showed it's not capable of that because we've lost so many people. So those are the beginning sort of, like I said, kernels of what that looks like. And then obviously there's a bigger discussion about the failure of a system that, like I said, does not prioritize us. And that, you know, the St. Vincent strike shows that strikes across the country that have happened. There was one in September of last year here at UIC Hospital Nurses and SEIU 73 members went out together as well, really talking about why we need to be able to have more staff and paid adequately and have the dignity and respect we deserve. So, yeah. So where are things now for you at Cook County Health? So we are um, currently, we did um, come to a tentative agreement, um, which was good. Um it didn't look very good in the news um, over the course of the strike and then over the weekend um, for, a, in particular, not only hospital management, but for the Cook County board and for its president, Tony Preckwinkle, um, who's the head of the Cook County, uh, Cook County Democratic Party, um, to not be actually giving nurses what they need after the pandemic. So we got a TA. They were told to get back to the table, um, the management side, to negotiate. And, you know, it looks very good. It's quite surprising to me, or it shouldn't be, that um, they have lots of money and a strike of, you know, about 1,200 nurses actually forced them to move that money towards us in a way that we had not seen since October of last year. Um, so that's really good, and we're voting on it now, and we'll see um, what the members decide. We vote today and tomorrow, so the results should be out soon. That was Elizabeth Lalish, a nurse at Stroger Hospital in Chicago and a member of National Nurses United. The Supreme Court has been chipping away at labor protections for years, but its most recent anti-worker ruling targets one of the most vulnerable groups of workers and takes a particularly regressive stance in elevating property rights over labor rights. In Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid, a 6-3 to three majority held that a California farm labor law that enables union organizers to temporarily enter farms to talk to workers is a, quote, per se taking under the 5th and 14th Amendments, unquote. According to the analysis at the On Labor blog, the decision reflects an extremely conservative view of the 5th and 14th Amendments by saying that the state, simply by mandating that employers allow union organizers onto their property for the purpose of engaging workers during non-work time and exercising their government-protected right to organize, is committing a, quote, physical taking, unquote, of the employer's property, and that the government has, quote, appropriated a right to invade, unquote, this privately held land. The three dissenting judges argued that the law merely allowed the union organizers to access the property briefly for the purposes of helping them exercise their basic right to join a union and that, quote, the imposition imposed by the regulation was temporary. It did not authorize a permanent and continuous occupation of the employer's land, unquote. 
but the majority upheld the property owner's right, not only to exclude organizers, but also to preempt a key state protection for workers' right to unionize as long as they are within the boundaries of the employer's property. For background, California established this labor law in 1975 specifically to fill in massive gaps in the Fair Labor Standards Act, which categorically excluded farm workers as well as domestic workers when it was initially passed. And those sectors, not coincidentally, employed many black workers. The California Agricultural Labor Relations Act, which pertained mostly to the extremely vulnerable, impoverished migrant farm workers from Latin America, was designed, as the decision notes, to give, quote, agricultural employees a right to self-organization and makes it an unfair labor practice for employers to interfere with that right, unquote. The Supreme Court decision, however, inverts that power dynamic by making it essentially unconstitutional for the state to unilaterally impose on employers a mandate that allows unions to organize in their space. It does leave open the possibility that the state may compensate employers in some way in order to enforce this law, but the decision signals the court's hostility toward union rights and bias toward private property rights. I spoke with Ben Sachs, a Harvard Law professor and editor-in-chief of On Labor, about how this decision might affect workers both on and off of California farms. This was a case involving the California Agricultural Labor Relations Act, um, which applies to uh, farm workers in the state of California. Now, listeners may know that farm workers uh, are excluded from the coverage of federal labor law. There's a, a, a racist history um, behind that exclusion. But the, the result um, in this case is that um, we, we're dealing with a state law governing union organizing and collective bargaining on California farms. Um, that state law mandated that agricultural employers allow union organizers to come onto their property for a limited amount of time each day during non-work hours um, to talk to farm workers about union organizing. Um, that law had been on the books for decades and w- was challenged recently by uh, these agricultural employers who claimed that uh, a mandate that they allow union organizers onto their property was unconstitutional because it constituted takings of their property, that the, the regulation um, amounted to the state taking uh, the uh, employer's property uh, without compensating for the, them for that use. And the U.S. Supreme Court essentially agreed with the employers here and said, yes, um, if, if the state mandates that union organizers get access to farms, um, the state has taken the farm owner's property. Um, and unless the state compensates the farm owners for that takings, um, we have an unconstitutional uh, regulation. Um, so that's that's the basic holding of the of the case. Um, it's a terrible holding for many reasons, um, which we can get into. Um, I, I do think there's uh, something that's important not to miss here before we say what's what's terrible, um, and that is when the Supreme Court finds an unconstitutional takings, um, the holding means that the regulation. Um, that the state, in order to enforce the regulation, has to compensate uh, the property owner. It doesn't mean that the regulation is impermissible or illegal in a broader sense. So what California could do in this case is figure out what the farm owners are owed for uh, allowing union organizers to come onto their property a couple hours a day when nobody's working. So pay the employer for the right 
the right under the law right, to actually go in there and organize. That's it. That's exactly right. The, 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 the way of thinking about it is that um, this holding means that the state of California has to pay farm owners uh, for the union organizers' right to access their property. The reason that this gives me some hope about the future for this law is that if it were me, it, I wouldn't think that the farm owners would be owed very much money at all. We're talking about massive farms uh, and a very limited right of access that by definition can't interfere with anything going on on the property in terms of farm work. So um, the, it may be that California determines that yes, a farm owner is owed uh, something for this access right, but is in fact owed very little. Um, and that uh, the best we could hope for is is a future in which California has to pay farm owners for the access right, but doesn't have to pay very much at all. And there is, in fact, precedent for this. There's an older takings case involving cable uh, companies and uh, the, a New York law that required um, landlords to allow cable companies to install equipment um, on, on their buildings. And the Supreme Court said, yep, that was unconstitutional. And it went back to the State Labor Commission and the State uh, state Cable Commission, and the State Cable Commission said the landlord was owed $1. Um, so so uh, I, I like to start with a, a bit of optimism about this case. That's where I would find the optimism. But um, but the decision is, is terrible. Um, it's terrible for a host of reasons. And um, in, in the labor context, um, it, you know, it means that unless California does begin compensating farm owners, uh, that farm worker unions have lost an incredibly important tool for organizing workers. These are, these workers are, are very difficult to access off off site, um, and um, you know to the extent that the the ruling invalidates the access right, it, it uh, dramatically interferes with farm uh, unions' ability to organize uh, uh, workers. Right. Right. So. Um, at first glance, this decision looks like it applies only to California and only to farms in California. So what are the, what are the broader ramifications of this um, in terms of access rights for other types of workplace organizing? Yeah, so that's, a, that's a, obviously a critical question. You know, on the one hand... The practical import of this decision for um, National Labor Relations Act, you know, uh, private sector union organizing outside the farm context isn't that great, but the impact isn't that great because the law is already so bad. Um, the law under the National Labor Relations Act, uh, as defined in a, in a case called uh, Leachmere, um, essentially... Um, is that union organizers don't have much right to access employer property for the purpose of talking to workers about unionization. There are some exceptions to that rule. Um, if, if, it's, if it's impossible to access workers um, off company property, the examples, the common examples are like logging camps or, or, or mining camps where um, the, the workers can be said to be outside of the normal flow of information that defines uh, contemporary society, then maybe unions have a right to go on employer property to talk to workers. Um, but in the vast run of cases, 
this access right doesn't exist already. Um, and so the, 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 the Cedar Point decision doesn't do much immediate damage outside the farm context. What it does do is it makes it much harder to argue that we should have labor law reform that would improve access rights under the National Labor Relations Act, which we absolutely need um, and which many of us have been proposing uh, for a long time. Um, there's no question that unions ought to enjoy um, uh, better access to employer property for the purpose of talking to workers about unionization. Prior to Cedar Point, that would have been possible with legislative change. That's no easy task, as we're seeing right now, but it's, it's, it's now a constitutional problem uh, to make labor law better uh, and improve access rights. Right. And the decision in this case hinged on the Fifth Amendment. So I suppose it's elevating property rights above labor rights. Yes. I mean, I think that's totally fair. I, the way I would put it, given these all these Supreme Court cases, Leachmere and Babcock, that are already on the books, is we already live in a world in which property rights are elevated over labor rights. Um, this decision constitutionalizes the problem. <laughs> That is to say, it makes it a constitutional challenge to ever imagine improving access rights through legislation, um, and that and that's and that's worse. Uh, you know, and just to just briefly thinking beyond the labor context, Cedar Point raises questions and problems about a whole host of uh, important legal interventions. Um, you know, the, to put it bluntly, um, almost anything can be construed as a taking of property. Um, and so any regulation can be construed as a taking of property uh, if it interferes with an employer's right to do something, to exclude, uh, let's say, whistleblowers. Um, is it a taking of property to prevent an employer from, um, from firing someone who blows the whistle uh, for any number of, of, of legal violations? Are there, in terms of labor law reform, um, I mean, there are aspects of the PRO Act, which is the main labor law reform that's pending right now, and uh, that would, say, restrict captive audience meetings. Could that be considered a taking? Um, you know, it's, it's always, <laughs> it, the problem with a decision like this one is that we have a vague constitutional text. Um, this, is, this is what the court was doing with the First Amendment. Uh, in recent years to, to union rights, um, taking, you know, the, these broad, vague clauses and applying them in contexts where we didn't think they, they applied. So now it's a First Amendment violation for a public sector union to collect a fair share fee. Now it's a takings clause problem for the state of California to allow union organizers on the company property. Um, so, you know, we don't know where the court's going, but what I would say is, um, like the First Amendment, the Fifth Amendment has now become weaponized, to quote Justice Kagan, has become weaponized in a deregulatory effort uh, whose uh, initial target is is labor law. Yeah. And this also seems to hamstring states, right? Because California had to pass that law because agricultural workers were excluded from federal labor law, right? That's absolutely right. So, um you know, if we um, if we don't get the PRO Act um, and, and even if we do, 
Um, many, many of us would argue that states ought to have um, much more discretion than they do to um, enact labor laws that better protect the right to organize and collectively bargain. Um, anytime you have a constitutional holding, whether it's the First Amendment or the Fifth Amendment, doesn't matter, that constrains not just the federal government, but state government. So with Cedar Point, th this, this takings problem now uh, looms over labor law reform that might take place in Congress, but also, as you suggest, at the state level. That was Ben Sachs, Harvard Law Professor and Editor-in-Chief of On Labor. Long-time listeners know that I am fascinated by the blurry lines between work and play that social media thrives on, where big companies profit from the content posted on them by users, but avoid any discussion of whether what those users do is work. It's clearly value-creating, but is it labor? We don't know. So now a group of TikTok users have determined that yes, what they do is work, and they are showing that with the oldest of tactics, the strike. Black TikTok performers have organized a refusal to create new dances for the new Megan Thee Stallion song. These dances often go viral and, the dancers say, get attributed to white users who perform them in locations that bring them much more attention and sometimes money. Carrie Paul at The Guardian writes, quote, Users Jelia Herman and Kiara Wilson, for example, staged viral dances in 2020 to K-Camp's Renegade and Megan Thee Stallion's Savage Remix, but Long did not receive credit for them. Meanwhile, white social media stars like Addison Rae took those same dances to larger platforms like Jimmy Fallon's show and Keeping Up with the Kardashians, end quote. Instead of dance videos, many of the striking TikTokers are posting videos explaining why they're on strike. One user, Captain Ken Knuckles, said in a video last week, For all my melanated brothers and sisters of the African diaspora, we are on strike. We are not making a dance for thought shit. We are just going to let them keep flailing. It just shows how much you need us to make a dance. Taylor Hatmaker at TechCrunch notes that the song choice is deliberate. Quote, the Megan Thee Stallion video is both a playful but important pay-in to essential workers, twerking grocery food service and sanitation workers in this case, and a biting commentary on the wealthy white establishment that exploits their labor without thinking twice, end quote. TikTok spokespeople seem a little worried. A TikTok spokesperson told TechCrunch, quote, we care deeply about the experience of Black creators on our platform, and we continue to work every day to create a supportive environment for our community, while also instilling a culture where honoring and crediting creators for their creative contributions is the norm. Kind of a tongue twister to say out loud, no mention of payment, of course. So TikTok, is it work? Are wages for TikTok next? Of course, lots of people do make money on social media platforms, most of the time as influencers who are paid by brands to promote their products and seemingly natural lifestyle posts. And a few weeks ago, I talked about a new move by the Screen Actors Guild to unionize some influencers. So... It's worth remembering Vine, for those of you who remember Vine, which was in some ways a natural predecessor to TikTok. It was a site where you could post videos that were only six seconds long, and it closed down in part because its users were drawn away to other platforms. And many of those users had organized to demand payment to keep using Vine and therefore keep the platform alive. What's the solution when so obviously these platforms are only valuable when people post content to them? 
For now, we will keep an eye on the TikTok strike. And if any of you are TikTokers who went on strike or thought about it or have some opinions, we want to hear from you at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Baby boomers are often seen as privileged and more financially secure than their Gen X, Millennial, and Gen Z counterparts. But the long, hobbling recovery since the Great Recession, on top of the recent economic turmoil induced by the global pandemic, have shown that there is an epidemic of long-term unemployment and older workers are especially vulnerable to being excluded from work opportunities. In light of this, the House of Representatives just passed a bill called the Protecting Older Workers Against Discrimination Act that aims to prevent employers from turning away older workers simply because of their perceived age. It actually applies to a bigger swath of the population than just boomers covering people aged 40 and up. Hello. And aims to restore protections in the wake of a 2009 Supreme Court decision that made it harder to prove age discrimination in court. The bill would align age discrimination protections with other civil rights protections against discrimination by sex, race, religion, and national origin. Age discrimination to some might seem less of a serious concern than those other types of discrimination. Some might even expect older workers to reasonably be passed over based on assumptions about their skills or personality. But it is a systemic impediment for older workers on the job market. An AARP survey found that ageism in the hiring process appears to have risen during the pandemic. The survey found, quote, in 2020, 78% of older workers reported having seen or experienced age discrimination in the workplace, up markedly from 61% in 2018, unquote. In addition, as of April, AARP reports, quote, over half of job seekers ages 55 and older were long-term unemployed, that's 53.3%, compared with 42.3% of job seekers aged 16 to 54, unquote. According to the Economic Policy Institute, the pandemic has had a significant impact on employment among older workers. Employment for those 55 and older has seen a net decline of 2.1 million jobs since February 2020, which, when accounting for population growth in this cohort, translates into a jobs shortfall of over 2.7 million jobs. And whereas the employment decline for younger age groups was milder in the current recession compared with the Great Recession of 2007-2008, it was significantly worse for older workers, especially older women. EPI notes that the recent more severe employment shortfall for older women compared to that of the earlier recession, quote, could be due in part to additional caregiving responsibilities for this cohort of older women. They may have left the labor force to care for elderly parents who left their nursing home or assisted living facility, other ill family members, or even grandchildren when schools shuttered. So here we see disproportionate structural barriers intersecting along both age and gender lines. If this aging discrimination bill were to pass, by the time it was enacted, the worst of this recession might well be over. But don't forget, the nation's aging Gen Xers, millennials, and yes, even zillennials will soon be entering their autumn years, and probably with less wealth and financial security than our boomer counterparts. Millennials, for example, are lagging significantly behind older age cohorts in wages and assets. So age privilege, like youth itself, is fleeting. In June, the Senate passed a key piece of bipartisan legislation known as the Anti-China Bill. It was touted as a measure to boost U.S. competitiveness and strengthen national security strategy with respect to its chief political rival. But why does it seem like the only time there is bipartisan unity in Washington is when the goal is to antagonize Beijing? Over the course of the Trump era, China has become a favorite target of the right on issues ranging from trade policy to human rights to COVID-19. 
with some dangerous implications in terms of anti-Asian violence and xenophobia across the U.S. But what does this mean for workers and for the labor movement both here and in China? In addition to being a massive authoritarian capitalist state, after all, China is also home to arguably the world's biggest working class. And for all the talk about so-called American jobs being offshored to China, where do the plights of workers in both countries intersect? Is global labor solidarity even possible? To figure out how labor and the left should be thinking about China, I talked to Tobita Chow, director of Justice is Global, and Kevin Lin, a Hong Kong-based labor activist and researcher. Kevin started off the conversation talking about how his work on Chinese workers' struggles overlaps with efforts to foster transnational labor solidarity. I have been an activist and researcher uh, specifically looking at uh, Chinese labor for the past uh, decade. Uh, so I'm currently based in Hong Kong, but I, I was previously uh, based in the U.S. Uh, so, you know, for the last uh, two, three years, I have also been very intensely uh, interested in, in U.S.-China uh, relations, but with, with, uh, with a more specific labor angle. So, so my interest is really in understanding what's happening to Chinese labor, the, the labor movement, labor struggles that has been going on in China for the last 10, 15 years. But also trying to understand, uh, you know, U.S.-China conflict, trade war, etc., from a, a labor angle, and 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 to that effect, uh, I also, uh, you know, have worked closely with Toby as well to uh, build solidarities between workers and, and activists in in China and the U.S. Uh, over the last few years. Yeah, and uh, Kevin and I met uh, originally, I think, um, in uh, through. Uh, that uh, uh, international uh, worker solidarity efforts. Um, uh, since then, I've uh, become the director of Justice is Global, which is a special project at People's Action to win a more just and sustainable global economy. Um, and in my own work, I have a special focus on the US-China relationship. Um, and I see the uh, growing US-China conflict, uh, which some people are calling a new Cold War, as uh, one of the major threats to global justice and to uh, the possibility of uh, social, political, economic progress uh, around the world. I, like, you know, as, as Kevin mentioned, I look at uh, the trade war and other aspects of the U.S.-China conflict um, in, in part through uh, the lens of labor and um, Part of my work is uh, critiquing the uh, the narratives that try to cast anti-China politics in the U.S. as a kind of pro-worker politics. Uh, this is explicitly part of the strategy of the Republican Party. Now they, you know, they've got this big effort to rebrand themselves as the party of the working class, and part of that strategy is to identify. China is the biggest threat to U.S. workers um, rather than U.S. corporate power or the uh, right wing politicians that um, are you know, attacking labor rights and so on. Um, and they know that if they can uh, cast China as the primary enemy of the U.S. working class, then they can cast themselves as the uh, champion uh, on behalf of workers in standing up to China. Um, and this is a key part of their strategy. And it's a it's a it's a fake uh, kind of working class politics that we need to uh, be aware of and fend off. Fake working class politics from the GOP. Shocking. Um, so 
yeah. So um, for both of you, I guess, uh, could you could you talk about maybe um, the past, uh, I guess we can just say the past couple of years uh, where we've seen this rise in geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China. And uh, Toby started talking about this a little bit, of course. Um, how how does that affect uh, your work um, with respect to trying to build transnational labor solidarity and trying to more broadly, I guess, improve working conditions for for working people both in the U.S. and China? Um, how do these sort of diplomatic or geopolitical tensions uh, hamper that work or, or maybe even uh, energize it in some way? Okay. Um, so to your question, uh, Michelle, I, I think, you know, you has re- I really see the impact on uh, on the kind of work, you know, building labor solidarity and, and also, you know, trying to support labor struggles in China um, in, in the following ways. Uh, one is, of course, uh, because of the geopolitical tensions, um, you know, any solidarity work that, that used to be possible, it, it was never easy, but but it was used to, to be possible to bring uh, workers uh, from China to, to the U.S. to, to meet with unions and and labor groups here um, uh, in the U.S. and, and also, you know, for, for U.S. activists to, to, to go to, to visit China and meet workers and activists there. That line of work, and also because of pandemic, of course, uh, that line of work has become really, really challenging uh, because any kind of uh, person-to-person, people-to-people kind of relationships, uh, even that is regarded as potentially, you know, uh, dangerous um, from the perspective of the Chinese government. Um, that's one thing. And second thing is really the the, the trade war that um, that has been going on uh, has really impact on, I think, the, the ability of, of workers to... Um, in China to, to advocate for their rights. Um, and, and that also shrinks actually also the, the, the space that, that, um, that labor groups and activists have, uh, in China, uh, to do so. And I think in part, you know, it, it's, it's economic because of the trade war, the, the, I mean, the China's economic slowdown, you know, the slowdown in growth has been already been going on before the trade war, but I think it's, it's further impacted by, by, by the, by the conflict and trade war. So, and as a result, I, I think the, the kind of space for worker to maneuver, to demand better wages and protection was getting smaller and smaller. Uh, and at the same time, uh, I think that also the Chinese government is, was more uh, cautious about, about potential labor unrest. Uh, you know, as a result of, of uh, slowing economic growth and, and trade conflicts, um, you know, the repression, uh, I don't think the repression can be reduced to the, the trade war, but uh, the repression certainly uh, 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 intensified uh, in the last uh, in the last few years. Um, and, and at least I think the trade war conflict, et cetera, geopolitical tensions contributed to, to that uh, intensification of repression. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you can step back a little bit and talk about what the landscape for labor organizing was like in China, because I think a lot of uh, a lot of people here in the states may not really have a concept of uh, whether there actually was, uh, you know, an independent labor movement in China. So, what was it like? Um, what has it been like, um, you know, previously and, and also during this latest uh, bout of geopolitical tension? Yeah, absolutely. Um... I think the really the height of uh, labor movement struggles uh, in China uh, was around uh, 2010, 
I think basically uh, over a decade or so from, let's say from or, uh, about mid-2000s, so 2005 or so to 2015, that 10-year period was very intense uh, a labor struggle um, in that, uh, of course, there is the, the, the official trade union federation, the old China Federation of Trade Unions that is affiliated with the, with the government. Uh, that that even that even that official trade union as bureaucratic uh, as it is uh, was you know uh, pressured under pressure to reform itself to better represent workers' interest and that's really is a result of just workers uh, industrial workers in particular in China uh, um, you know building up their power uh, organizing collectively into strikes wildcat strikes. Uh, protests, demonstrations, etc., and that really changed the landscape of Chinese labor. There, there was better legislations. There was, in general, better treatment of workers uh, in in manufacturing, but also in some other uh, sectors that have been that that we have seen um, labor struggles. So you know, it's not just industrial workers. It's teachers have been organizing. It's uh, you know, Walmart workers. Uh, you know, uh, taxi drivers, etc. So there have been a quite intense period of labor struggle, and that kind of slowed down uh, after 2015. Again, partly because of uh, a start of a, a, a very intense repression in 2015, but also that coincided with the slowdown in the Chinese economy and later on the, the onset of the trade conflicts. That I think all of those factors played a role in. Uh, in pushing back against the the militancy of worker struggles, but for about a ten year period, that was re- was really remarkable. And and I want to just also say, I think you know, despite state repression, despite you know the authoritarian regime, um, effort to to push back against workers uh, organizing for for that ten year period, workers really uh, 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 won m- much of their battles. You know, but they were able to. Uh, force uh, employee employers uh, to make concessions, etc., and and put pressure on the government to uh, better protect their rights, um, and, and that has kind of come to not the end, but come to really slow down period in the last last few years. I see. Okay. And uh, Toby, you believe you've mostly been working uh, stateside during this these past few years um, during the Trump administration and heightened geopolitical tensions. So what is it, what does it look like uh, in terms of your work here? I've seen some of what uh, Kevin spoke about in terms of uh, the way that these increased tensions have really shut down the possibility of building, you know, grassroots person to person um, relationships of solidarity. Kevin and I both collaborated on, uh, uh, a tour of a, a couple of labor activists from mainland China um, in the U.S. And I think this was 2018. Um, uh, and this was just at a point where things, uh, this was at the towards the beginning of one of the waves of crackdowns on labor activists in China. And um, yeah, it's pretty soon after that, that kind of activity became basically impossible. Um so that has been a major, major loss. Um, uh, and, you know, previously also Hong Kong uh, could function as a space where uh, organizers and, and folks on the left and labor activists from the West could uh, go to Hong Kong 
and uh, and meet with folks there and 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 form relationships with mainland activists through um, activists in Hong Kong. Um, but uh, with the you know crackdowns in mainland China and now the severe crackdowns on um, civil society and democracy in Hong Kong, those opportunities uh, I think have also really shut down. Um, so that's just a, a tremendous, tremendous loss. And uh, it has an impact on the work that we can do here in the U.S. because you know I've seen the transformational effects that. Um, when, when you just bring ordinary working class people in the U.S. into contact um, with, uh, with their counterparts um, from, from China, it, it completely transforms people's consciousness and their understanding of the um, potential for international solidarity and um, their ability to see through the ways that um, the working class is pitted against each other across national borders and... Uh, yeah, there's this whole area of of work that's now closed off to us. Um, and so that's been just a, 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 a tremendous loss. So we have to start thinking about like, what are different ways that we can um, keep the spirit of, of global solidarity alive, um, uh, despite these uh, increasingly hostile conditions um, that we face because of increasing nationalism in China and increasing anti-Chinese nationalism here in the U.S. as well, and it's been it's been very challenging. Um, one of the places that we look to is um, uh, uh, organizing, uh, you know, with uh, international students from China here in the U.S. and other folks from the Chinese diaspora. Um, these are ways to like try to approach uh, forms of, of transnational solidarity. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the space for um, building uh, U.S.-China grassroots solidarity um, has really shut down in a way that's um, made, made everything like much more difficult. And at the same time, we have um, this bipartisan turn to anti-China politics in the United States. And like I mentioned before, it's a big part of the strategy on the right to... Um, uh, use that to uh, rebrand themselves as the party of the working class. But, you know, we also see liberals and leaders in the Democratic Party uh, doing more than their fair share to, um, like, contribute to this narrative. And I think they they don't really fully understand how this is just fundamentally playing into the hands of right-wing authoritarians in the Republican Party, which I find very, very alarming. Um, and I think could point to some really dangerous long-term trends um, for um, for U.S. politics. Um, I think on the plus side, um, uh, progressives uh, in the U.S. are uh, increasingly coming to realize that this bipartisan turn to anti-China politics is um, a real threat to the progressive agenda, and that um, we... We all need to uh, figure out how to counter this and and create alternatives. So that's created some uh, opportunities uh, for our work around progressive um, U.S.-China policy. You know, Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, um, came out with a very significant uh, opinion piece in in the Foreign Affairs magazine, a very mainstream and prominent uh, foreign policy magazine. Um, criticizing this new anti-China consensus in Washington. Um, this is uh, 
this is sort of a milestone in um, in terms of uh, progressives coming up in opposition to this anti-China turn in U.S. politics. Um, and so I think there's um, a lot of opportunity right now to increase um, the power of this progressive front that's going to oppose uh, this this um, relentless march towards increasing U.S.-China tensions. Um, but yeah, right now, uh, right-wing forces and anti-China hawks um, definitely have the uh, advantage. So um, uh, yeah, uh, I think there's there's hope for us to build more power around this. But um, right now, uh, things look pretty dire um, as far as uh, this this part of U.S. politics goes. Yeah, um, I would say uh, it seems like the only time you can ever get uh, the two parties in Washington to agree on things is when they're sort of rallying around the flag and, you know, uh, behind some anti-China initiative or legislation. So that is quite curious how this has taken on sort of a bipartisan kind of uh, flavor in Washington. Um, I guess outside of Washington, um, how do you see nationalist rhetoric playing out, uh, I guess, in, in, in everyday communities and in, um, you know, in workplaces or just, you know, among working class people that you talk to in your work? Um, but, you know, how do, how do the, the, the sort of rhetorical barbs um, that are lobbed across the Pacific um, kind of trickle down to how um, everyday people behave or how they perceive uh, themselves, um, you know, as, uh, as, as members of, uh, you know, kind of a, a global society. Um, uh, and, you know, I guess one of the things that comes to mind is the surge in uh, anti-Asian violence that we see in the United States. Um, do you think that is a, a manifestation of um, some of this rhetoric and, and, uh, so, you know, what are ways to counter that, not just at the highest levels of policymaking, but, you know, uh, at the grassroots? Yeah, I think there is um, absolutely a connection um, uh, between um, this turn towards anti-China politics in the U.S. Um, and uh, the rise of anti-Asian racism, Um and I think we like specifically the kinds of narratives about China um, that uh, contribute to these incidents of racism are, I think, narratives about how China is a um, threat to America, a threat to the American way of life, um, a threat to uh, the economic security of, of everyday Americans. Right. So these narratives about how China is a threat to you. Um, those are the narratives about China that um, I think we see uh, feeding uh, racism um, in, in concrete ways. Um, and uh, we did some research uh, around this uh, at Justice is Global earlier this year. And some of the ways we see this uh, coming up is, um, uh, of course, like narratives about how China is responsible for the pandemic. Um, that's been um, one of the biggest influences um, behind uh, the rise in uh, anti-Asian racism uh, since last year. Um, but you can also see the impacts of other China threat narratives. Um, for example, that uh, China is spying on us or that there are Chinese agents like trying to influence and, and somehow corrupt U.S. society. Um, we see, you know, uh, 
those are those are narratives that we see being promoted uh, again by both parties um, uh, around how China is an espionage or, or a so-called influence threat to the United States, and it shows up in racist incidents when um, people will accuse a Chinese or just an Asian person of being like a CCP agent or or something like that, an agent of the Chinese Communist Party. Like that has that rhetoric has shown up in acts of, of racism uh, since last year. Um, uh, narratives of how China is an economic threat to the United States. Um, those can also get translated into racist incidents about, um, you know, how you're responsible for taking our jobs and, and stuff like that. So it's specifically these narratives about how China is a threat to the United States. And I think we need to make a careful distinction here um, between uh, those narratives, which are, I think, um, just uh, horribly overinflated um, in mainstream uh, discourse about China, um, like the threat that China poses to ordinary American people is routinely um, massively over-exaggerated. Um, we need to distinguish between those kinds of narratives and what I think are uh, much more legitimate critiques of, of the Chinese government's uh, human rights record, um, crackdowns in Xinjiang and on Hong Kong. Um, I think uh, those are completely legitimate criticisms and uh, as well, um, I don't think that we see those feeding into uh, racism in the United States um, in the same way as the China threat narratives. Um, and I think this is intuitive enough that the kind of person who is most likely to engage in racism against Asians is probably not likely to care deeply about the welfare of people in Hong Kong or uh, of, of Muslims in, in Xinjiang. Um, like that's not what that kind of racist person is going to care the most about. They're going to, what's going to motivate them is this sense of like a personal threat to them. Um, and I think that's, you know, this makes, makes sense. It's, it's a historical pattern. And I think it's what we're seeing play out today. Um, and have you, um, have you developed any methods or strategies in terms of counteracting that, um, you know, whether it's in the media or just you're in, day-to-day interactions with people while organizing? Yeah. um, uh, So I think something that can be uh, a really powerful way to counteract that is, uh, on the one hand, is narratives of cooperation. Um, The need for, uh, the the need and the potential uh, for U.S.-China cooperation to solve uh, shared global challenges. Um, Another, um, another set of narratives um, that can be very powerful is uh, narratives that like humanize and individualize um, uh, Chinese people, either people in China or, or folks in the Chinese diaspora um, here in the United States um, that portray, um, portray uh, you know, Chinese people is, is having shared struggles and um, uh, uh, with uh, just like the majority of, of Americans and the possibility of solidarity. Um, we did a, uh, an experiment last summer where um, uh, we called a bunch of, just a bunch of um, people on the voter file from uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania. So just like random um, uh, people on the voter file and uh, talked to them about um, their views about China in relationship to the pandemic. And we both like surfaced a lot of, the anti-China sentiments that we knew uh, were out there, um, but also had um, uh, what I found to be like a remarkable amount of success in, in moving them off of the strong anti-China sentiments 
um, through narratives of, of cooperation and how cooperation is a way that we can um, uh, address shared problems such as the pandemic. Um, so I think uh, um, it's, it's, it's sort of st- strategies like that that can, um, uh, I think, uh, uh, address some of these, these issues. But it's, it's quite challenging because a lot of this stuff is um, coming, it's, it, it's, it's, these recent trends are rooted in longstanding, very deep-seated narrative structures um, that are going to take a long time to root out. And um, one set of narrative structures is just, um, you know, longstanding um, uh, uh, narratives about Chinese people and other Asian people, racist narratives that go back to like the 19th century. Um, uh, So this is like deep-rooted stuff. Um, Another really deep-rooted narrative structure is the kind of um, orientalist um, uh, binaries that you get between the U.S. and China or the U.S. and the East in general. Um, It's just a consistent feature that um, we in the U.S. or or in the West um, uh, uh, tend to um, form our self-image in contrast to um, uh, this image of the other. And right now, China is the other that um, the U.S. sort of imagines itself in opposition to. And this is like another consistent feature of of U.S. society. It's very deep-rooted. And, uh, uh, you know, there's not going to be any quick solutions to to rooting that out. Yeah. And I would say along with that trope uh, comes uh, kind of, you know, increasing inability to distinguish between China as a nation state and uh, Chinese people <laughs> and sort of this growing kind of, uh, dehumanization of, uh, of that. Yeah, that, that, that is a key narrative, right. Um, that we're up against. It's, it's, it's very standard and has been standard for generations to imagine all Chinese people as, uh, this homogenous collective as, as a monolith, um, which means that, um, a lot of people will just find it natural to, um, to extend any judgments they have about the, you know, say the Chinese government um, to ordinary Chinese people and see any ordinary, just an average person from China is somehow um, automatically plugged into um, uh, the, the, the Chinese communist party or as an appendage of the Chinese communist party. And um, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a very like longstanding racist um, uh, set of narratives and, um, uh, what we see is that anti-China hawks and um, right-wing demagogues um, uh, find it very easy to work with that material. Kevin, you're in Hong Kong. I'm curious as to how nationalist rhetoric plays out there, given Hong Kong's pretty uh, unique, <laughs> unique location, I guess, in the in the geopolitical map. Um, you know, Hong Kong being part of China, but also um, having uh, a considerable amount of maybe anti-mainland, would you say, sentiment uh, percolating um, among people in Hong Kong, and 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 how how is China seen um, among Hong Kongers these days, and and how does that affect um, the work of labor activism, um, especially in light of the longstanding connections um, that had been cultivated between activists in Hong Kong and on the mainland. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and if I, if I may, I, I kind of just want to, I, I very much agree with, with uh, Toby's point about separating before addressing to the question of Hong Kong. Is this separate, you know, separation between a very legitimate criticism of the Chinese government uh, and, and, and this narrative of China threat? And I, and I, I want to make that point that, um, I think there's long-term, as Toby uh, laid out, I think there's long-term racism that going all the way back to the 19th century and, and always latent in some ways. And now it's kind of encouraged by by the state or by a certain section of the, the, the U.S. Uh, state to, to kind of encourage or at least tolerate that kind of racism. Uh, but there is also a very specific, uh, you know, historical specific shift Um from roughly the the uh, global uh, financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. And that shift, uh, uh, there was a, a academic of uh, Johns Hopkins who wrote about this. This, this shift is fundamentally to do with the changing attitude of the American business community that, that does trade and business with China. Um, very much from the 1990s uh, onward, uh, up until the global financial crisis, uh, the, the attitude of American business is very much engagement and and uh, co- cooperation uh, with China. You know, like there were there were human rights violations all the way. It didn't start in the last two years, but uh, the the business community in the U.S. were willing to turn uh, the other way, uh, despite you know all the report of human rights abuses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, labor rights abuses, massive labor rights. Uh, 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 labor rights abuses in factories invested by by foreign uh, non Chinese uh, international um, capital, but 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 that that did not uh, become a concern to turn away from China. Um, but it was really the to do with the China's um, government's own development strategy that is increasingly looking inward to really strengthen its own industries and and limit and restrict uh, access. Um, uh, of, of you know from you know American and other European companies and, and and then as reaction to that a lot of American and European businesses began to turn against China and and that that sort of integrated like started a shift uh, toward more uh, hostilities it's not the only factor but that that's an important like historically specific contact to the current uh, um, conflict and hostility that we're seeing. And and now onto Hong Kong, and this is where it gets really really uh, tricky. Uh, as as we were talking or alluding to earlier, you know, there's very legitimate criticism of 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 the erosion of uh, freedom and you know civil liberties in Hong Kong. Uh, you know, you can go back to maybe 10, 15 years ago, but certainly in the last few years and the last year, it's been really really uh, severe and and. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's very severe and, and, and just really, really rapid. The deterioration, uh, you know, people getting uh, arrested all the time. Uh, and it's, it's come to a point where it's really hard to process and, and react to any of, of the, the arrests because it's just, it just happens so regularly. And, and here, you know, that's why it's get tricky is, uh, you know, as probably a lot of you listeners know, you know, the with the protest movement in Hong Kong in 2019, there is certainly a, a, a element of anti-mainland um, xenophobia and and prejudice and, and if you can call it racism um, that that is manifest for sure. And, and at the same time, you know, uh, some of the Hong Kong 
uh, movement activists look to the U.S. Uh, and U.K. for for support, etc. And very very often to the right wing element because those are the people who are uh, who are trying to ex- the right wing you know, in the in the U.S. and U.K. are trying to uh, exploit uh, the Hong Kong movement uh, and to in order to attack uh, China. So this is a very mixed politics. So so you know being based in Hong Kong, it has been challenging to navigate that politics. On the one hand, you 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 are opposed to the kind of anti mainland racism and anti mainland attitudes, but at the same time, you also see why people turn towards the the right wing, the conservatives uh, in the U.S. and U.K. for for support. And I think that the really that you know you know in, in a way the kind of the battle that that Toby and I and many others are are fighting it's an uphill battle, but it's really I think for us about building that grassroots. Uh, uh, um, uh, relationships, networks, uh, collaboration, etc. Uh, you know, because uh, you know, as much as we can, and we should try to influence narrative in the media. I think that it's really, really overwhelming. It's the odds are against us overwhelmingly. Um, so we need to do, I think, what we do best, which is the kind of grassroots organizing uh, in the U.S., uh, in Hong Kong, and in many, many other places. My understanding is that there was quite a bit of coordination um, on some labor campaigns as well as some uh, labor investigations on the mainland um, with uh, Hong Kong uh, labor groups. Um, have those research connections been um, eroded at all um, by the recent tensions um, or you know, divisions between Hong Kong and the mainland? Or are they still happening? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. Uh, you know, Hong Kong has really been an important um, a place uh, for 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 labor activism um, in the mainland. Uh, it's really from the the nineteen early to mid nineteen nineties onwards, and sort of accelerated in the two thousands. Uh, because just for background, because that was a period when you know Hong Kong businesses, uh, as well as other you know foreign investment, uh, uh, relocated and moved uh, into mainland China, and you began to see massive serious uh labor rights violations you know factory fires uh uh, uh occupational accidents people's finger got cut, cut off or uh they suffer from lung uh disease uh, diseases etc you know you, you begin to see hong kong uh, uh groups civil society groups and labor groups labor activists trade union etc uh began to engage with workers in the mainland uh, uh especially after the 2000s uh, and there will be there are regular um, uh, meetings, travels between uh, activists and, and uh, in Hong Kong and in the mainland, and and Hong Kong is also a place given the the kind of uh, political freedom it, it has enjoyed. Uh, you know, it's where people can can launch campaigns. You know, as you mentioned, doing research, investigations, finding out what's happening, and then put pressure on you know global brands to to hold them accountable for for the. Uh, labor rights abuses in, in their supply chain. And that role has really uh, kind of stopped during the protest in 2019, just because, you know, it was really hard, politically sensitive for, for activists uh, and workers in the mainland to, to come to Hong Kong. And of course, COVID-19 hit and that make it even more challenging. And now we're really seeing a more, even more challenging political uh, 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 contact political environment after the 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 national security law that came in, into effect in July uh, uh, last year. Now it's it's you know because the 
they discovered the law was so wide and, and very vague in, you know, just in where the boundaries lie and actually endangers or at least it really pose a, a threat uh, to so many activists. You know, it's not even activists, you know, working on Hong Kong uh, uh, movement, but also, you know, activists based in Hong Kong, but work with mainland activists. That's also become uh, more and more uh, difficult. Going back to the U.S., um, you both been observing the U.S. labor movement for a long time now. Um, in general, like how uh, how interested would you say U.S. labor and unions and labor activists are in labor struggles happening in China. I feel like maybe 15 years ago or thereabouts, there were some stirrings of maybe transnational exchanges or coordination maybe between U.S. labor groups and perhaps, uh, you know, Chinese labor groups or what purported to be the labor movement in China at the time. And now uh, you, you don't hear that much about uh, Chinese workers, certainly, uh, coming from the labor movement, it seems, not the mainstream labor movement anyway. Yeah, I think your impression, I agree with your impressions, I share them. Um, And I think there are at least a couple of factors here. Um, One is that uh, the level of... um, labor struggle, in particular, like high profile labor struggle in China um, is not what it used to be. Um, and like Kevin mentioned, this this has a lot to do with um, increased crackdowns. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's easier to talk about the potential of U.S.-China worker solidarity if there are these exciting, impressive looking strikes in China um, that you can point to. Um, and there used to be more of that. Uh, uh, a decade ago um, uh, than there is today. And that has to do with these very successful crackdowns uh, from the Chinese government and also a a broader restructuring of the Chinese economy. Um, So a lot of the big factories where you would have seen these sort of labor actions, um, like the the Chinese government has been intentionally uh, deindustrializing some of the major coastal cities um, in order to make way for more profitable um, uh, economic, uh, uh, like business sectors, um, in their mind, you know, they're trying to become, uh, a more advanced, um, um, global economy in that way. Um, and, and that has, uh, eroded some of the centers of worker power, I think. Um, so, um, which, which is similar to the process that we've seen here in the U S as well. Um, but definitely another part of it is that, um, I think it is, it is very, uh, there's, there's, a a very powerful uh, temptation um, uh, for labor unions in the U.S. to see um, the turn towards anti-China politics as an opportunity rather than a threat and to see uh, anti-China trade policy and and economic policies as a thing that could uh, potentially deliver gains um, for workers in the U.S. So, you know, when Biden talks about how we're going to build wind turbines in in Pittsburgh rather than in China, and that's going to be how we create jobs, um, that can seem like a kind of pro-worker politics. Um, and you can you can really see the, the, the appeal 
of of that kind of you know seeing like U.S. politics is is taking this anti-China turn anyways, and uh, it seems like um, uh, it's something that could deliver some gains for at least some U.S. workers. Um, the problem with that is, um, you know, as we've seen in Trump's trade war, uh, that the the the, con- the these these sorts of economic nationalist uh, policies can also cause a lot of damage to the U.S. economy and cause a lot of job losses. Um, there, are lot, there are tons of job losses, particularly in manufacturing, coming out of uh, Trump's trade war. And uh, before COVID hit, it was, uh, there were some signs that it, the trade war might threaten to, to dip uh, the U.S. economy into a new recession. Um, and, um, and actually, the U.S. manufacturing sector, I believe, um, uh, if you just take the U.S. manufacturing sector on its own, it did qualify as a recession um, due to the negative impacts of, of Trump's trade war. Um, and, and then, again, when we look at how this anti-China politics feeds into um, right-wing nationalism um, and this sort of fake working-class politics that the Republican Party is trying to cloak itself in, um, this, this turn towards anti-China politics is, is, is going to end up empowering the most anti-worker uh, uh, faction of, of U.S. politics. Um, so um, I think this idea that uh, the U.S. working class can turn anti-China politics to its advantage is an illusion, but you can, you can see the appeal there. Yeah. Um, Kevin, do you, uh, how does it look from the perspective of, of, uh, you know, organizing, uh, workers in, in the mainland, um, as difficult as that is becoming now. And, and, um, you know, is it, it would, would anything the U S labor movement does at this point even be useful <laughs> to, to organizing in, in China, or is it just, is the U S labor movement just not sort of a, uh, not, not really a factor, I guess, in, in terms of the, the work that, uh, you're observing. Yeah, I and I and here I can really agree with with uh, Toby's analysis here. I think there is definitely, you know, a, a risk there by um, tying, you know, for the unions to tie themselves so closely to to the Biden administration's uh, kind of um, trade war, or economic war with China. I I, I remember, um, you know, seeing a lot of the earlier. This goes back to maybe seven, eight, nine years ago. Some of the earlier meetings I had, you know, set with, you know, Chinese uh, workers, activists uh, uh, and uh, American unions, uh, activists, etc. Um, that was early 2010s. Um, I, like in almost all of those meetings, the workers were, uh, either American workers were, were really, really interested in what's happening in China. You know, as you probably can imagine, like their first reaction is, oh, we don't really know what's happening uh you know, in terms of worker struggle in China, and and we're just hearing these amazing stories of workers uh, organizing welfare strikes, <clears throat> not protected by the by the law at all, and re- really risking, you know, being detained, arrested, uh, but they still go on strikes, and it's not just one or two; they happen so regularly uh, in China at the time. So you know, there there was a sense that the workers here uh, in the U.S. Uh, are kind of inspired by by you know. Their, their counterparts uh, in China. Uh, but at the same time, there was always, on the one other hand, uh, if you talk to like more senior union officials, seated in the, in the meeting, there's always more 
this always strike a more cautious note. Of course, they are, they will say nice things about worker struggle in China, but at the same time, they're almost always more uh, uh, interested in this question of, okay, can we, you know, are those strikes and protests able to lift up the wages uh, of workers in China so that, you know, uh, American businesses will come back to to the U.S. So so that has always been there. Um, I think, uh, and I think an important shift kind of occurred, you know, when Trump came to power, uh, a lot of unions and, and labor organizations in the U.S. Uh, began to turn inward. And that was talked about at the time. It was a very conscious uh, decision, right? Like, oh, you know, Trump was attacking uh, 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 American labor, like we need to really focus on what's happening domestically in the U.S. rather than international. You know, we care about international stuff, but that has to, you know, take a back seat. And, and I think that, you know, even now that Trump is gone, now that Biden, Biden's sort of, you know, it's kind of, uh, uh, um, how should I say, like, like a, uh, uh, you know, there's appeal. You know, if you look at the the speeches and and, and documents that come out of the the administration, you know, talk, they, they talk about labor rights. They talk about the rights to, to organize and collectively, collectively bargain. Like those are the things, of course, that the unions are very much for, uh, and it's very hard to disagree with those. But at the same time, you know, that is kind of the, the bright side of the, the, the core, which the other side of which is, is, you know, we need to, uh, reorganize global supply chain. We need to, uh, compete with China, and so, so, so I think there's a huge risk that if the the trade unions in the U.S. go along with that, uh, I and I don't actually, I don't, I'm not really not convinced that you know it will necessarily bring huge amount of jobs back to the U.S. Uh, because you know jobs are being relocated, as Toby said, out of China to Southeast Asia to to other parts uh, of the globe, uh, looking for even cheaper labor. It's it's really unlikely unless you know we are living in different economic system. I think it's unlikely businesses will just tolerate much much higher labor, uh, pay uh, uh, in order to move uh, to move business back to the U.S. So I think it may it may be risky, like from geopolitical perspective, for union to go along. But it also you know it may not even bring the result they want in the first place. Yeah, um, it does seem, uh, you know, certainly more convenient to just focus on getting those jobs back from China rather than thinking more systemically and structurally about how global supply chains are organized and how workers everywhere are sort of being screwed by the same set of forces. Toby, did you did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, um, I think, yeah, just a couple things. Um, one, like a really important fact is that um, manufacturing employment in China is also on is also decreasing and this has been true for a number of years now right so so china is also um deindustrializing um so this idea that we're going to bring back the jobs from china well the the jobs in china are also going away right um so um trying to like and, and, and it's not just China. This is more broadly uh, a trend in, in the global economy, um, a, a decline in manufacturing employment. So um, particularly when it comes to this idea of, of competing over manufacturing jobs, um, if the approach is uh, to bring back the jobs from China, you're talking about competing to grab a larger piece of a shrinking pie. And um, that's just not a, a recipe um, for for success. Um, it's, it's a recipe for like just continued frustration and increasing conflict. Um, and if we want to talk about like, what's, what's the bold 
progressive vision for the future of the working class, um, you know, one of the one of the biggest things that we could do for working class power is um, win something like the Green New Deal, um, which would uh, include a program for full employment in like the clean energy economy. Um, and that, you know, that would create a bunch, you know, millions of, of, of green jobs. That would be great. But it would also shift the balance of power between labor and capital um, when you're talking about um, using this sort of, sort of public uh, program to create full employment that massively increases the bargaining power of all workers, not just the workers that are employed by Green New Deal pr- programs. Um, so, you know, that's a vision that we can work towards, um, like a positive vision that we could work towards, like a bold new vision of, of, of the future of the U.S. economy um, and a future for all U.S. workers. Um, and that is like completely at odds um, with this turn towards um, anti-China politics what we're seeing what we're seeing this like right now like this turn towards anti-china politics who's the beneficiaries of it um it's not um it's not uh campaigners for the green new deal it's the military industrial complex um which is getting uh uh one of the largest defense budgets um um uh, ever um uh, proposed by the biden administration and its figures on on the right so these are uh the the stakes of um, the U.S.-China relationship and the totally corrosive role that anti-China politics is is playing um, right now and uh, uh, yeah it's it, a, a, it's going to be a big task for for all of us to sort of unveil the ways that um, anti-China politics is is posing as a is is fake working class politics and to create alternatives. I guess, a parallel to the sort of uselessness of the protectionist rhetoric around the trade war is also just this relentless focus on trying to somehow shift geopolitical power between the U.S. and China as opposed to shifting power between labor and capital, which would be much more useful for the global working class, I guess. So uh, to that end, um, in general, how do you think the U.S. left, maybe, you know, the left in general, thinks about China or treats China. And uh, I guess I I ask because um, it seems that in the U.S. at least the left is sometimes confused about how to deal with China or uh, there's an impulse to be critical of China or critical of Beijing on the geopolitical front and on, um, you know, human rights and and things like that. But also there's this constant, uh, you know, discomfort with perhaps playing into the sort of xenophobic rhetoric or right-wing talking points about China that just, you know, feed our reactionary agenda. And, and yet, you know, it's also unhelpful when, uh, you know, people on the left in the U.S. Uh, somehow refuse to be critical of China uh, in a sort of, you know, enemy of my enemy, it's my friend kind of thing. So um, how, how should the left be thinking about China right now, um, both in terms of um, the interests of, of workers here, and also just trying to build that global solidarity that um, both of you are working towards. Yeah, I, I think I think there are just several levels of, of confusions. Um, one is, as Michelle, as you alluded to, is um, the uh, which is, which is you know based on uh, anti-imperialist principles that we you know, should be uh, less uh, or, or should be more careful in terms of criticizing, criticizing uh, China because now, now the U.S. is uh, in conflict with China. 
uh, that you know sometimes very, very often uh, become essentially either looking the other way or apologists for for the uh, the human rights abuses that the Chinese government has committed. But I think even more serious uh, confusion or, or issue I, I have seen um, on the U.S. left, but it's not just U.S. left is just kind of indifference um, in the sense that um, I, I don't think people are that interested in, in what's happening in China uh, and to, to workers, to young people, to social movements. They're just the level of, of understanding. It, it's pretty shocking given just, you know, China is on the news all the time in the U S it's the U S government has been engaging in, in, in the conflict in, in also the conflict with China for the last several years you would expect that the, the left in the U.S. would be paying close attention to, to what's happening in China, not just to like saying, oh, let's not criticize China. And that's the thing that I consistently have found uh, in leftist circles. I mean, I, th- I think that in part is, uh, you know, there's a sense that, oh, you know, China is so far away, you know, and Chinese workers, you know, we're, we, we, of course we support workers struggle in China, but, you know, it's so far away, it, it's really not, it's kind of afterthought rather than something that I think is actually very closely linked to, to what's happening in the U.S. And it's just that sense of feeling, a sense of indifference, that that disinterest, I think, make it even worse. Because then when someone else, you know, either has a position on China, it's very hard to counter that position when, you know, uh, most, you know, a lot of uh, people on the left simply don't feel comfortable or don't feel confident talking about China in the first place. And I think I think that's really missed opportunity because I think, you know, gaining understanding of China, uh, it's it's social movements, it's y- young people, it's uh, it's workers, it's peasants. I think that's really really important in in countering um, um, the the anti-China sentiment, the the, the racism, the xenophobia, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I think that's really key. You know, if you don't really understand uh, what's happening uh, uh, on the ground uh, in China, or at least try to try to do that uh, I, I think you know the left is always on on the back foot always tr- sort of reacting to uh to to the conflict rather than trying to you know rather than taking a more proactive uh, approach uh so yeah I, I would encourage you know your listeners you know people who are concerned about u.s china conflict to actually really invite some time to to look up books website articles trying to understand okay what are the social movement what are people are concerned about in in China, what are the the activism they're engaging? I mean, there is a massive number of young people in China who are also very disaffected, discontent with with the way you know with the capitalism, with their lives, how their lives are are are, are turning out, and, and there's a lot of discontent as well. So understanding that, and understanding actually, there's not a, co- a lot actually a lot of commonalities. That the more I look at US and China, I don't know if that's your impression too, Toby and, and Michelle, but. The more I look, the more I see a lot of commonalities between young people and workers in China and the U.S. rather than differences. Yeah, Toby, uh, how to combat both uh, ignorance and apathy on the left in the U.S.? So one really um, common, like all too common way to respond to anti-China politics in, in among the a, a lot of the U.S. left is to adopt a strategy of defending the Chinese government from all criticism um, and uh, inciting with the Chinese government against the U.S., um, which this is a kind of like vulgar anti-imperialism. I think this is absolutely a mistake. 
Um, I think it's a strategic um, uh, mistake uh, and um, it fundamentally buys into the same nationalistic binary that uh, the, the ruling class is, is, is trying to convince us of this, this nationalistic binary where uh, there's a struggle in the world between the United States and everything it represents and everyone in, in, in the U.S. versus China and everything that China represents and, and, and all Chinese people. Right, so this is nationalistic binary: U.S. versus China, and um, um, and it and and the, you know a lot of people on the left sort of buy into that nationalistic binary and say, okay, we're going to side with China against the U.S. And I think that's a mistake. Like we need to we need to blow up and deconstruct that nationalistic binary entirely. And the the perspective to do that from, I think, is one of solidarity with uh, oppressed and exploited people. Um, in the United States, in China, and all around the world, all oppressed and exploited people everywhere. Um, and that's got to include people in Hong Kong, that's got to include uh, Uyghurs and others in Xinjiang, and also other ethnic minorities in China who are also suffering varying degrees of, of repression. Um, that's got to include um, rural migrant workers in China. This is nearly 300 million rural migrant workers, the largest section of the Chinese working class, um, highly exploited um, and and also a target of repression. Um, that's who we've got to identify with. And, and from that perspective, um, we see um, we can we can see that the the ruling class in China and the ruling class in the United States and and the growing strains of nationalism in both countries, um, like that's our that's the shared threat that we all face. And uh, like yes, absolutely understanding this requires a level of political education about the Chinese economy and, and Chinese society. And uh, I think that is something that the U.S. left um, uh, urgently needs to um, in, invest more in um, to, to understand the structure of the Chinese economy, to understand the different forms of repression and oppression that uh, different parts of the population face. Um, and... Uh, once you once you see that, like Kevin says, um, you see all kinds of parallels between the problems that people face here in the United States uh, and pe- and the problems that are, are faced by people in China. We have um, uh, shared problems, um, and these shared problems require shared solutions, um, and that's the basis of international solidarity, and that's the basis of fighting back against um, nationalism here in the U.S. and in China. Right. And so on that note, um, to conclude on hopefully a, a positive um, a positive note, um, are there specific campaigns or, uh, you know, projects that, that you're working on or that you'd like to cite as maybe examples um, of how to foster this kind of solidarity, um, both between the U.S. and China and just, you know, for the global working class in general. Um, I recall a couple of years ago, there was some solidarity work being done uh, between tech workers in uh, in China and outside of China, given the sort of convergences of the struggles of, of, of workers in, in both China and the U.S. Uh, are there any are there any examples of, of that kind of shared shared struggle that you'd like to point to? 
I, I can just pick it up, uh, on up from the, the tech worker example. I think this is a, a really good example where, um, you know, you really see, so see parallels and, and similar conditions across, you know, across different, the two countries and, and many, many more. So that's tech industry that's, you know, kind of platform labor where condition workers, you know, in the US, in China, in much of the world are very similar. I think this is a really important point to emphasize um, because, you know, in the past when, you know, international solidarity work was organized, it was uh, very, very often organized on the basis of kind of sympathies. Uh, for example, give you a quick concrete example, you know, when industrial workers, manufacturing workers in China were on strike, uh, you know, the in the U.S. because it's been so deindustrialized, uh, you know, it's very hard to find factory workers. So you may, you may come to say, you know, communication workers, right. Uh, who are also going on strike and they, 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 you know, the, the American workers will be inspired by the factory workers in China, but the, the distance is too far in terms of the sector and, and, and conditions, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very hard to actually build, um, build that, you know, very concrete solidarity and support for each other. Uh, on the basis of, you know, shared, uh, situations, you know, Walmart was an example, but even there, it, it's, it's a little bit, it's still, there is, it's, it's better than, than, than the rest, but still, uh, I, I think, I think the, the, it, it was, the conditions are still quite different, but it, there are similarity, but it's still quite different. But like, I think this is much more, there's much more solidarity in say the tech sector, for example, and and this is where also I think you can build a genuine, you know, internationalist kind of solidarity. In that, uh, you know, it will be, uh, you know, because American capital and Chinese capital are very intertwined in, you know, in the tech sector, and 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 then, you know, and then of course there are there are similar, uh, you know, sometimes the same companies or very similar companies uh, doing business in American companies doing business in China, or you know, so so I think there is a more a stronger base. Uh, basis for building like really concrete rather than symbolic solidarity, and I think that's as I mentioned, tech workers, but also uh, platform labor, uh, and I can also actually think of other sectors that are a bit diff- more difficult, like teachers. Um, you know, the 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 school teachers in China have also been you know going on strikes and protests for for many many years. So I think finding that actual similar uh, co- concrete similarities and, and, and conditions. And that's where I think, you know, you can build a common struggle rather than uh, sympathy or, or, or a kind of symbolic solidarity. That's really, really great, but, but it's not all, always uh, enough to build a, a transnational kind of labor uh, movement. So, so looking across, you know, to see your counterpart, to find your counterparts that are also, you know, organizing and, and demanding better protection, better rights. I think that's really the, the most important way to, to genuinely build uh, transnational uh, movement and transnational solidarity. Toby? A, a lot of uh, our focus is uh, here in the U.S. is uh, has got to be on um, uh, countering the trend towards increasing anti-Chinese nationalism um, and the and which which gets into a feedback loop with nationalism in China. Like this is really important. The nationalism. The, the more nationalistic the U.S. gets against China, the more nationalistic things are going to get in, in China. And then that's going to come at a cost for the working class in both countries um, and more broadly around the world as well. 
Um, so anything that we can do to intervene um, and disrupt anti-China nationalism in the U.S. is going to contribute over the long run towards increasing the amount of space there is um, for more transnational solidarity. Because the more nationalism flares up, uh, the, le- the, the, the more the space for transnational solidarity shrinks. Um, so I think uh, that's one of the major fights that we, we have to wage um, here in the U.S. Um, and there's... Um, uh, yeah, a number of a number of fronts to that fight. One is um, the intersection with anti-Asian racism. Um, one is uh, the intersection um, with militarism, and uh, another one that I think has a lot of potential that we're 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 looking into developing a campaign around at Justice is Global is the intersection with climate and the way that the increasing U.S.-China conflict is a, a dire threat to the climate policies that we need both domestically and globally. Um, and so this issue of U.S.-China intersects with a wide range of other issues, um, which also means that there's a, a lot of different ways to sort of um, uh, plug in and, and sort of attack this common problem from, from different angles. Um, and uh, yeah, at Justice is Global, we're going to explore the climate angle more, but that's not the, the only one out there. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Tobita Chow, Director of Justice is Global, and Kevin Lin, a labor activist and researcher on China. We'll put more information about their work and everything we've discussed here up at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. This week, while the news in the New York City mayor's race was inconclusive and messy, though at least Andrew Yang didn't win, there was big, big news in New York's second largest city. Union nurse India Walton, backed by DSA and the Working Families Party and not too many others, defeated the four-term incumbent mayor in Buffalo's Democratic primary. Without a Republican candidate at all, unless a Herculean write-in effort is made, not that we should count such a thing out, Walton will be the first woman mayor of Buffalo and the first openly socialist mayor of a U.S. big city since 1960. Though, of course, we would be remiss on this podcast if we did not mention Chakwe Lumumba in Jackson, Mississippi, and his son, Chakwe Antar Lumumba, who is the current mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. And so, because this is great news, I chose to share with you a piece by friend of the show and StrikeWave editorial collective member C.M. Lewis over at Protean Magazine, setting the scene for Walton's unlikely win in Buffalo's deindustrialization. The piece is titled Gilded Rust, The Making of Buffalo's Socialist Upset. Lewis writes, Quote, the city itself is a shadow of its heyday, with the banks of Lake Erie littered with abandoned grain elevators and steel mills. Buffalo's economy rapidly collapsed along with the American steel industry. Major employers like Lackawanna Steel, a subsidiary of Bethlehem Steel, had shuttered by the 1980s. People went with the jobs. As of 2020, Buffalo had fewer residents than it did in 1950. The baby boom fled the city, whether for the suburbs or other states. 
None of this meant that a socialist revolt was an inevitability, nor did any serious political commentator believe that Walton had a chance at defeating Byron Brown, the incumbent mayor. But she did. End quote. Brown, he notes, is close to Andrew Cuomo, and that closeness has meant that some money has come Buffalo's way, but that money has not trickled down to the working class. He writes, quote, nothing was more emblematic of this strategy than the so-called Buffalo Billion, a multi-phase public-private partnership scheme bankrolled by the state of New York, masterminded by Andrew Cuomo, and carefully shepherded by his local consigliere, Byron Brown. Tax incentives helped the new owner of two of Buffalo's sports teams, the Sabres and the beleaguered Bills, build a new hockey facility and draw spending to the waterfront where nightlife destinations and microbreweries flourished. But Lewis notes, quote, none of it was real. There were signs that the growth was smoke and mirrors. As City and State reported in 2019, most of the post-recession jobs added were in the low-wage, high-turnover service industry. The poverty rate is essentially unchanged since 2010. Now, as then, nearly a third of Buffalo residents live below the poverty line. Violent crime has soared. Even as capital flooded into western New York, little of it reached the pockets of those that needed it most. The revitalization has been a superficial playground for the children of white Clarence suburbanites, deepening rather than alleviating poverty and inequality. Years of reporting have exposed the graft and corruption in the Buffalo Billion Project. Allegations mounted that money was funneled to Cuomo's supporters, securing the bulwark of upstate backers that stood by him in the 2018 gubernatorial primary. Promised jobs rarely materialized, and a 2020 audit by the New York State Comptroller revealed that investments consistently underperformed. The same report showed that Tesla's Buffalo facility, which briefly saw an attempt at union organizing, returned a dismal 53 cents on every dollar of public funds invested, just months after it was reported that New York spent $50 million on equipment for Tesla that the company never used. End quote. Yes, that Tesla. This, of course, is where India Walton comes in. Lewis writes, quote, all of it, the Buffalo Billion, persistent corruption, and lackluster responses to calls for police reform paints a portrait of a crony machine presiding over the strip mining of what little Buffalo has left. Selling every piece of real estate to developers and handing out tax abatements like door prizes. Even as public officials hit the drumbeat of Buffalo's revitalization and Byron Brown sat high atop his machine, residents continued to suffer. The backdrop to India Walton's victory suggests there should have been warning signs for an establishment too confident in its own security, that the sharp dichotomy between a narrative of revitalization and stagnant inequality could deepen distrust in neoliberal prescriptions, end quote. But the battles are just beginning in Buffalo, as those developers and cronies of Cuomo are not likely to look kindly on a self-identified Black socialist mayor. Lewis notes, quote, it'll also be a reckoning for New York labor, which did what New York labor does and backed Brown in a show of craven, cynical realpolitik. Walton is a union champion, and nothing points to retaliation against opponents, but whether they will embrace her mayoralty remains to be seen. Some unions, like NISNA and SEIU 1199, will likely pivot, as they did after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's upset victory in 2018. Others, like the building trades, may well throw in with developers. End quote. 
It is, of course, going to be important that unions and workers pick a side in Buffalo, particularly if threats of capital flight start coming hard and fast, as they will no doubt do. And that choice still should be easy, as Lewis notes, quote, For her part, India Walton's mission and politics are clear. Upon winning, she immediately and unapologetically responded to reporters that she considers herself a socialist. What her mayoralty will be about is not in doubt. Working class power. All that we are doing is claiming what is rightfully ours, she told supporters. We are the workers. We are the workers. We do the work. My pick for ARG is... We took care of each other, a maritime union's hidden history of gay, straight, and interracial solidarity by Jonathan Kassam in Labor Notes. It's an illustrated depiction of one of the earliest and by far most progressive unions of the early 20th century. The enchanted tale begins around 1901 when the Gilded Age and global commerce had led to a boom in maritime industries. Marine Cooks and Stewards Union, MCS, represented the frontline workers of a ship's crew. The servers, porters, housekeepers, cooks, and others who tended to both the middle and upper class passengers, as well as the crew. As Kassam writes, quote, they faced grueling conditions, often being forced to work 16 hours a day, seven days a week, with no overtime pay, and sleeping in substandard quarters they called floating tenements, unquote. For these workers at the bottom rung of the maritime economy, MCS was initially a fairly run-of-the-mill union, which, like other labor organizations at the time, maintained an exclusively white male membership. But things changed during the Great Depression. The collective trauma the workers experienced with mass poverty and unemployment compelled the union to begin opening up to Black and Asian workers, since they all had to unite to combat the bosses who ran the ships. During the 1930s, massive multiracial coalitions formed and organized strikes to demand fair working conditions, resulting in coastwide contracts for MCS and the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. And they all campaigned under the banner of the newly formed Congress of Industrial Organizations, or CIO. Another key evolution during this period was a shift in the union's attitude towards gay cooks and stewards, who were then known as queens. Previously, the queens had been shunned and often harassed and abused by co-workers. In an interview with historian Alan Berube, a steward named Revels Caton, who was black and straight, said the union members realized that they had to be maximally inclusive to prevent the boss from exploiting divisions and turning workers against each other. He said, quote, in 1936, we developed this slogan. It's anti-union to red bait, race bait, or queen bait. We also put it another way. If you let them red bait, they'll race bait. And if you let them race bait, they'll queen bait. That's why we all have to stick together, unquote. Sticking together works. Berube relates, quote, the insults kept coming, but the gay stewards are getting bolder because they know their union is watching their backs, unquote. Stephen Mickey Blair, a white gay MCS member, told Berube, Quote, marine cooks and stewards took the dignity that was in each of us and built it up so you could get up in the morning and say to yourself, I can make it through this day. Equality was in the air we breathed, unquote. I suspect some of this sense of unity was also derived from the isolating, brutal nature of the work itself, which forces coworkers to rely heavily on each other for support. The intensity of that bond can, in some cases, fuel tribalism and discrimination, but at its best, it fosters empathy and solidarity between workers who might otherwise have very little in common. 
During World War II, the fight against fascism helped further galvanize the left-wing union's vision as MCS membership soared and many went to work on ships that were deployed as part of the wartime mobilization. That included many gay people who had been excluded from the armed forces. But there was one obstacle to unity that even a united anti-fascist front was not strong enough to overcome after the war. It was a rash of red-baiting against left-wing unions, many of them in the CIO. Kassam writes, quote, Along with UE, ILWU, and eight other unions, MCS was brought up on charges of, quote, communist domination and expelled from the CIO. The Coast Guard declared MCS activists as, quote unquote, security risks and prevented them from taking jobs on ships. Other unions used homophobia and racism, as well as red baiting, to try to destroy the MCS. Ultimately, the union was absorbed into the conservative Seafarers International Union, unquote. So it turns out that that MCS slogan rang tragically true. If you let them red bait, they'll race bait. And if you let them race bait, they'll queen bait. All of those attacks led to the demise of MCS. Their enemies found whatever vulnerability they could to denigrate and vilify the union. And the virtual erasure of the history of this organization remains part of its curious legacy. Barabay wrote this about the impact of the MCS. Quote, their history is unknown today because through fear and intimidation, it was first rewritten as an un-American activity, then dismissed as an insignificant failure, and finally erased from our nation's memory, as if what they had achieved had never happened, unquote. But despite their persecution during the Cold War, MCS and their message are not completely forgotten today. After all, Labor Notes revived this story and published it just ahead of Pride last weekend, along with a wonderful comic strip by Annabelle Heckler, which puts faces and images to the prescient comments expressed in their oral histories. So was MCS ahead of their time? Absolutely. But in many ways, they were a product of the tumultuous era that they emerged from. They witnessed a global economic crisis that shook the very foundations of industrial capitalism, the rise of fascism and world war, and a period in which labor movements everywhere, as well as modern societies in general, were challenged to live up to the democratic principles that they touted. I'll end with a quote from former MCS member Peter Brownlee, who is incidentally a straight white guy. He talked about the uncompromising ethos of MCS and how it both embraced difference and transcended boundaries. Quote, we were so democratic, this country couldn't stand it. The most important thing was not that we had gays. It was that an injury to one was an injury to all. And we practiced it. We took care of each other, unquote. As our society awakens from another period of turmoil, conflict, pain, and tragedy, maybe that's a lesson for the post-pandemic world and for the ongoing movements for queer emancipation as well as racial and economic justice. Real freedom grows out of mutual respect, shared humanity, and the quest for dignity in every aspect of our lives. If those things anger the powers that be, rest assured that history will one day vindicate you. And that is all for this episode of Belabored. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks again to Colin and Natasha for making us sound good as always. If you'd like to support our independent journalism on labor issues, please consider contributing to our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash belabored. You can also get a cool free gift in the form of illustrations by Molly Crabapple. And you can also contribute by supporting Descent Magazine directly and subscribing at descentmagazine.org. And if you want to get in touch with us with story ideas, we want to hear from you. We want to hear from you if you are a union organizer with some harrowing tales about how difficult it has been to get past all the barriers that management has thrown in front of you when trying to access workers. If you are a social media content creator looking for a fair recompense 
If you've ever been a victim of age discrimination and want to talk about your experience, or if you are living outside the United States and want to talk about the workplace struggles in your community, please get in touch at hashtag belabored on Twitter, or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.